Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined, as usual, by Ash Milton, our Managing Editor. Hey again, everyone. So today we're going to talk about centralizing society. This is this thing that comes up a lot, especially in West Coast sort of discourse of the future. There are questions about whether we're going to be decentralizing or centralizing uh, or on what dimensions. People talk a lot about decentralizing this or that. Um, I think it's sort of assumed that decentralization is a good. These are a bunch of things that we have disagreed with at Palladium. We think that the world is becoming more centralized by various mechanisms. Uh, we've, we've discussed the technological mechanism in particular. And also we believe, or many of us have, have made claims that this can be good, that we can find, and that we should find um, what's good about centralization, because if we're dealing with a more centralized world, well, we should be able to envision a positive version of that. And, and, and I think this, this needs to go beyond, I think, the reflexive good of centralization that drives it, which is that, of course, you have people with various powers who want to extend those powers to get whatever done that they're trying to get done, you know, whether that's the police trying to get more powers or the press trying to get more powers or the financial system trying to get more powers to integrate more things into their legibility spheres and thus centralize society to accomplish whatever ends they have. That's sort of a unreflective driver of centralization. I wonder if we can have the more high-level discourse is centralization actually a good idea for society, not just particular actors who are doing the centralization? So these are discussions we like to have. We're going to be thinking about this over the next few months quite a bit. And so we wanted to have a podcast to kick us off. So Ash, you had some thoughts that you wanted to start us with, if I remember correctly, and then we can just explore the topic. Yeah. So the way that we're talking about centralization here is, I think, something we should define a little bit conceptually. On the one hand, obviously, there's a certain kind of centralization and increased scale of social organization that's happened for centuries, right? And it sometimes it increases, sometimes it decreases. Um, you know, in three millennia or so ago, you have the the scattered kind of local kingdoms of the Greeks versus the more centralized urban Troy. You have then the Roman Empire, then you have a decentralization again in the West, and you have a recentralization with the rise of print, of nation states, of industrial society, and in the modern era, uh, digital technology. And I think we're talking here about a very special kind of centralization in society. And, you know, th this is not just geographic this is not just political either. This is not just a matter of sort of state centralizing more or something. The claim I want to make here is that human life is more centralized in the sense that our achievements and the organizations we build and the relationships we have are made highly legible. Obviously, this is not a unique thesis to us. This is the seeing like a state thesis, but I think it's very useful. Um, and I think it's a good starting point to what we could call sociological centralization, right? This The centralization of our experiences in society. And 
I actually think it's easier in a way to see how you can positively order technological centralization. Like you can think of surveillance technologies or you can think of big data or you can think of kind of centralized logistics and you can probably think of at least some ways that those could be used positively kind of for socially good purposes. I think there are actually certain aspects of sociological centralization where it's much harder to understand how that can work. And so the thing I want to highlight here is that I think the way that most of us experience that kind of society is through the fact that our experiences are not just made legible, but that our incentives become to game and optimize and increase those things, right? And so our incentives also become extremely marginal. Like our, a lot of our social competition occurs on these marginal aspects, right? On grades, on promotions in very formalized corporate environments, these days on dating apps as well. And when that happens, I think we start getting a psychology, both an individual and a mass psychology, where our action is basically completely defined by this kind of marginal action and by expending huge amounts of energy on winning marginal, like battles for marginal victories. And when that happens, you you no longer have eventually significant institutions or, you know, parts of society that can actually think in a holistic way on the large scale. And, at, and, and this also applies to people who are theoretically in fairly powerful positions, right? They're in government or they run powerful ministries or powerful companies, but they've also come out of these same institutions, right? They've gone usually to the same universities. They've, they're up there because they've won a bunch of these marginal battles. And so the system selects for centralized marginal optimizers even for people who end up in very prominent positions. And I think this is actually a lot harder to make positive than, than the particular technologies involved in this process. Yeah, so, so we have, um, let's concretize what those dynamics are. I mean, we're, I think what we're talking about is everyone competing on the same market, everyone trying to go to the same schools, everyone chasing the same metrics of of beauty or, or cultural value or well, whatever. And that the criteria for those things is is all expressed in the form of metrics, right? I think that's like also a key part of this. There's not there's not much qualitative judgment that goes on when the the dynamics are such that everything has to be expressed in form of legible data that can be measured and, and extrapolated from. I think the the legible data, the the kind of metrics thing is one part of it. It's it's sort of easier to centralize things when you cram them into these highly comparable numbers. But I think it's not just about metrics. You know, like you give the example of dating apps or something. I don't think that's about metrics as much as it's about very liquid comparability. And so you can get it once you have this this very liquid comparability, it sort of mimics the properties of number without itself being a number like you, you know, people can make these judgments about, you know, who's hotter or whatever on, on the dating apps and therefore who you want to associate with. And, and those are sort of holistic judgments of what you can see, but also the very quick comparability means that they, it has centralized that 
uh, and, and sort of liquefied that scale of values. And and so th- that's just an amendment to your point there. But yeah, I just wanted to concretize it. Like the kind of centralization we're talking about is is these centralization of of yeah language or aspirations or or you know market discourse there's all kinds of reasons for this and then and then so we can we can get into why this happened or why this happens i think we always bring up the technological thesis as you gain in technology that can be material or social technology as you gain in technology it becomes possible to do to harmonize record keeping on larger and larger scales and if you have harmonized record keeping what you're talking about is really everything has been centralized into this homogeneous format and that means for certain operations that that vastly increases efficiency for other operations it actually vastly decreases efficiency and and so what are these other operations that that it gets a lot worse at um experimentation thinking outside the box development of multiple streams that are happening in parallel, tackling kind of different possibilities. Those things are, they're very difficult um, within a centralized homogenous space because, you know, suppose there's always some dominant player in a homogenous space. There's some dominant paradigm of what's valuable or whatever. And if anyone's trying to build some alternative, they have no, they, they have to compete directly with the established norm. They don't have to, they don't have any sort of possibility to develop an experiment with a structural subsidy the way you do if there's um, more division between different kind of information domains or something. And so that's a way that it can actually make certain things a lot less efficient. And so this is this is part of what I think what you're saying, Ash, about that kind of centralized, homogenized record keeping in this very general sense, um, why it can actually be a very negative thing in some cases. Yeah, and I bring it up just because it's the most immediate thing that I think most people interact with. I mean, despite the fact that, yeah, most of us are sort of surveilled in, in a general sense, I don't think most of us experience our lives as being very surveilled just because a lot of this is very effectively integrated into everything from phones to, you know, how, how we store information. Um, and, and obviously things like security cameras are just sort of the most obvious part. But I do think that that experience of expressing your achievements in a way that can be easily understood by central administration or central operators or data systems or whatever that is something we actually experience pretty immediately so i i kind of want to bring that up just as a starting point and as as an example of what i mean by sociological centralization or by you know by a centralized society rather than just like a centralized technology or even a centralized state like there is more going on here than just government centralization and in fact the centralized society I'd say is the driving force generally for uh, centralization of other institutions. There's kind of a feedback loop going on there. So we have to connect this to the mimetic competition thing. Um, when you get everyone into a homogenous space where they are compared in very liquid ways, whether that be through homogenous metrics or, or just you know enhanced comparison systems, you get 
everybody competing for the same type of success. And this, this leads to everyone imitating each other and, and imitating just one centralized um, goal and, and leads to obviously like the, the classic kind of Girardian violence of, of, you know, kind of this mindless competition over some idol of desire that, that is only desirable because the other guy desires it too. And this is sort of the consequence of that kind of, or one consequence of that kind of centralization. So that's interesting that it, it, it like naturally leads to that kind of dimensionality reduction in, in the, the human spirit, which, which then also leads to violence um, or, or conflict. The interesting thing, uh, connection on that is uh, we've speculated a lot, not on Palladium yet, but in, in some of our in-person conversations about this question of sort of how many souls are there in society? How many are, how many, how many people are there really? If, if you count people who imitate each other and basically act the same as being effectively the same, you know, in a in sort of linear algebra terms, you might say like, how many how many actual eigen people are there, or something, or like significant. The, and this is related to the question of maybe how many people can you actually have in a polis? So I think Aristotle named ten thousand. Medieval Florence had forty thousand, and and you know vastly impressive cultural. Uh, and and material productivity and creativity despite only 40,000 people but like what town of 40,000 today has anything like that um, it's it's just not it, it, there's sort of a mystery there like why with 7 billion people or even eight, almost 8 billion people do we not have you know hundreds of thousands of times the creativity of of some of these these small you know athens or or florence or something and i mean part of it is just like you know those those were especially elite spaces they had the right kind of people in them or something and and maybe you know most people aren't aren't necessarily like that but i think that there's this effect where as society grows it necessarily retains some centralized character and the centralization means people crush themselves or get crushed into these molds of um, imitation and and standardization. And so you actually have maybe something like a, a, a much more fixed number of souls to allocate to society, to any given society. So like you might propose that actually it's impossible for any society to have more than 10,000 people in it. And if it looks like it has more than 10,000 people in it, well, that's because some of the people are fake or they're not part of the society or they're, they're, they're crushed and enslaved in some manner such that it does not, in fact, blow that limit. Um, and this is, this is a hypothesis I've, I take seriously, and I find that interesting. So it's sort of connected to this idea of centralization. If you have a more centralized society, you actually have fewer creative people because there are fewer different environments in which to explore. One example that 
I think works to illustrate this is academia and the pathways into academia, right? So you, you look at the era of someone like Ludwig Wittgenstein. How does someone like Ludwig Wittgenstein get recruited into academia? Well, famously, Bertrand Russell tells him to present stuff he's already done uh, as a thesis, and he defends it, and he's awarded uh, a degree. And, you know, the whole thing is kind of a show in one sense. But it's also a sign of the thing working properly, because the people, kind of the masters, as it were, of the academic institutions were trusted to have the judgment that they could recognize when someone was a genius, and they would simply recruit them into the institution. And, you know, Wittgenstein was obviously a guy who went in very odd directions with what he thought he should do with his life. I think at one point he worked um, in a factory. Um, he, you know, he basically never really followed initially any particular path. He kind of had work he was doing and just decided to do it. And at some point, other people recognized it and tried to recruit him in. You know, and yes, it's an exceptional case, but how many exceptional cases like that do we get now? Now we look at academia. On the one hand, people might like to argue that, oh, actually, academics are doing very unique work, right? Because we're all, everyone's hyper-specialized. On, on the other hand, the mode of the academic, right? The pathways into the thing are very identical and they all for the most part involve extreme competition on a few of the same metrics and for the most part i'd say uh, a lot of uh, academics lead very similar lives in very similar domains knowing a lot of the same people they compete on basically the same metrics they use very similar language in the field because the field itself develops a hyper specialized language and even though there is a hyper specialization in the domain of work, there is an extreme homogenization in like the archetype of the academic and the sort of person that these institutions are creating and integrating into themselves. And that then leads to a decline overall of the dynamism of the institution. And I think that that homogenization is actually the more important thing there. The, you know, the hyper-specialization, there's lots of conversations one can have about that. But I think for our purposes, the, the effect of centralization and of like this increased competition with more people trying to like optimize less metrics is the, the thing that we're seeing play out in various domains of society. So... Okay, that's the kind of centralization we're seeing. We've, we've sort of described some of the problems with it. I want to bring in another one, which is, um, we all know the myth of Babel. I think it's important in the context of centralization. You have, so basically, you know, sometime after the flood, people are building cities again. Um, and they get this idea of building the most powerful city and kind of getting everybody in that city and building some immense structure, the Tower of Babel, that's going to, uh, you know, reach into heaven or whatever. And one interpretation, I mean, there's many different interpretations of this, and I, I am not certainly not a scholar of this stuff, but one interpretation that I like is that they're sort of trying to build a singleton. They're trying to build a a single society that dominates everything. And they get 
everybody together doing a single project. And, you know, the, as the myth goes, God confounds their language and makes it so they can't talk to each other anymore. And they can't get along and they can't coordinate anymore. And the thing flies apart and, and fails. So what's going on there? How do we interpret this? I think when you have a society that is tied together with some center, if it has things to pay attention to, like enemies especially, or grand projects outside of itself, then that centralization is somewhat sustainable. It's, it's a means you've centralized in order to accomplish some external end or, or prevent some external threat or whatever. And that's where it can kind of make sense. But then when you've done that without the external referent, what happens is all of people's ambitions become inside the structure and not using the structure for external ends. When things, this is, this is the case when things become too centralized, everyone's ambitions become playing out within the structure, getting advantage within the structure and, you know, breaking off power within the structure. This, this means that the, the motivations actually holding the thing together have gone away. And instead what you have is people trying to grab, grab sort of the zero sum competition within the, the centralized structure. And so it flies apart. It, it, it comes apart because the, the biggest ambition that people can think of is, is to, to sort of break off autonomy within the thing. And so this, this is this natural force that prevents singletons um, or ne- sort of like necessarily causes their failure. Um, so this is an interesting hypothesis. I don't know if it's entirely true, but it means it suggests that like there's this danger, both a danger to centralization and a um, an inherent preventatory mechanism. The danger is that the thing will fail and fall. Your Tower of Babel will fall over. The preventatory mechanism is that. God has decreed that, you know, a a singular society or organism that tries to centralize everything will just get cancer extra fast and die. It just decomposes. It it flies apart under its own sort of lack of purpose. And so this is interesting. It suggests a world in which centralization is kind of constantly happening but then it fails when it gets too big because it becomes it becomes too big and too successful and it flies apart and and things are constantly getting broken back down and so this is an interesting contrast to the technological trend that we see and the sociological trend we see in history which is as people's horizons get farther and farther um you know i I mean the, the horizon of travel, the horizon of communication, the horizon of knowledge, the horizon of, of artillery shelling, you know, like how far can you lob a bomb, right? Um, and uh, the, as those horizons have extended, it meant that everything is sort of in the same domain 
And you might predict that the result is that everything ends up in the same society and even in the same will. It all ends up centralized under the same will. And that is something we've definitely discussed previously. I've, I've sort of thought that way. But I think with this sort of the, the babble centrifugal decomposition force pushes in the other way, which is maybe, yeah, everything ends up in the same domain, but that doesn't mean it all ends up under the same will or the same society because there's an inherent natural diversity. Uh, like the, the natural pattern is actually you have multiple active powers within a, a single domain. So despite everything getting up in a single domain, it doesn't necessarily centralize all into uh, a single society. But I think I think the key is that the number of different subunits, whatever they are, within this domain may be much smaller than everyone is comfortable with. So it might be there's there isn't room for one country in the world, um, or, or rather there's there's too much. Like like the thing will fly apart if there was just one country, but maybe there's not more than 10. You know, maybe there aren't more than 10 countries in the world in, it, in almost any scenario uh, and and not much less than, say, five. And, and that's obviously a big difference from the 180 something or whatever it is right now. It, you know, obviously, most of those countries are fake, but but we imagine that the real ones number somewhere more than 10. And likewise, with the number of people, we got into that discussion of sort of the eigen people. Um, how many different eigen people clusters are there, dimensions or whatever? Um, maybe there's only ten thousand in a single domain, and we are centralizing the world such that there is a single domain. There's going to be only ten thousand people. Um, it's, 10,000 or 10,000 like unique people or, or 10,000 people worth of uniqueness or something like that, like, depending on how you think about it. Um, and then everyone else is just kind of spiritual clones. That's this model that I'll, I might lay out that like, okay, we're moving towards more centralization, but also there's this inherent preventatory mechanism because, you know, both the, the sort of Girardian violence and the the, the babble confounding of language breaks the thing back apart and and prevents it from uh, centralizing and possibly catastrophically present, prevents it from centralizing. Yeah, like, so the upper limit seems to be defined by coordination rather than by just the simple ability to exercise power. So an example of this is nuclear weaponry, right? You have nuclear power and ICBMs, and the result is that we can exercise destructive force literally around the globe. And if you ask, you know, a lot of the sort of respectable luminaries of the 50s and the early 60s, people thought that, well, we must be on the brink of like a global state or a global society now or some kind of, you know, global world order at least because you can't have nuclear weaponry and a bunch of different states because they'll just destroy each other. And... You know, you had people like Leo Zillard who tried really hard to get that going in the U.S. Um, I'm sure there were equivalents uh, in the Soviet Union, maybe some, and in, in Europe there certainly were, maybe some other regions. But what ended up happening was that 
no one was able to coordinate on that level. And so the stable equilibrium was actually several nuclear powers, right? And so maybe the way that you measure which countries are real countries is measure which countries are nuclear powers. Uh, I don't know if that's the, comp or, or, you know, the sort of like fake quote unquote non-nuclear powers, like say Germany or Israel or Japan, where, you know, it's like the, the, the screw turn away from being a nuclear power, you know, effective nuclear powers. That might be one way you discover who is a real country. But that is a question of coordination, right? There were certain states and, you know, by which we mean certain networks of people who are able to coordinate effectively enough that they could gain control of nuclear weaponry. Uh, and there were most others uh, who didn't and, and a few who even refused to for various ideological reasons. So, so when there's a coordination limit, even the ability to exercise military power over the globe is not going to get you beyond that coordination limit without actually figuring out um, how to beat that boundary you are going to be stuck at, at the whatever the real upper limit is yeah but I'm I, like the point I'm making is almost that the coordination limit is actually it's not by absolute scale it's by relative scale to the size of the domain and as you approach totality within the domain you actually approach impossibility of coordination this is this is a i don't know if this actually is true but this is the hypothesis that i'm throwing around here is it's like so let me let me give a couple examples of this so you know you mentioned the nuclear game after world war ii so in world war ii you know the united nations wins the war as they were calling themselves at the time we now call them the allies um, because the United Nations has become something different. Now, how did it become something different? Well, the, you know, the United Nations creates a one world, you know, a, a one world government. And then it's almost immediately uh, the two biggest powers decide they don't get along anymore. Stalin says one thing and America says the other. And, um, you know, suddenly it's not the United Nations. It's a new Cold War within uh the, within the structure of the united nations and so you you have um but you still have a world order like a world order has has sort of terraformed the the entire world there is a single world order but it has multiple powers within it and then another example that's interesting is i don't know if this one is quite as direct but um if you look at the history of Japan, history of Japan shuts itself off from the outside world for a long time. And during that time, it's quite decentralized. So it's, you know, it's, it's sort of more feudal Japan. It's the various warlords and, and shogunate and all this. And it's actually quite decentralized and a lot of internal competition in Japan. And then they open up. And then there's the, and there's the Meiji Restoration, and Japan actually quite rapidly um, becomes centralized, and then directs its competitive instinct outward. So that's this interesting example where their domain was just Japan, and then they open it up. Suddenly, the domain is much larger, and suddenly because the domain is much larger, because they're paying attention to more of the world and they're seeing more of the world, suddenly 
the 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 internal competition well it, it didn't go away that quickly it, it even continued through world war ii but they managed to get quite centralized quite quickly as soon as that domain had expanded so there's again it's like the, the point is maybe as you get domain expansion or as you reach the limits of your domain you get like suddenly more ability to be be centralized because you have more external ends to apply that centralization to or you lose the ability to be centralized as you reach totality in the domain because you have no external ends to which to apply that centralized will that's that model i think it's interesting yeah there's this kind of interesting cause and effect question going on there right like if you look at the 18th 19th centuries the states that centralize are the ones that expand fastest and there that that is the cause and effect question like is there expansionary pressure or or outside influence that forces you to centralize like germany is a good example of that right where it's a collection of city states until the french invade right? until napoleon invades and then that spurs this process of uh something like 70 years at which point like those 300 something states i believe it is are centralized into a single empire ruled by a single house right so that's maybe an example where like the outward pressure is forcing the centralization to occur. Um, on the other hand, you you take like France, where its centralization is spurred by internal pressures to a degree, but like like and but it already has a very centralized system, right? So be, like Paris kind of establishes this very centralized political order under the monarchs and and it sort of compounds centralization right so you have the aristocrats called to the court uh i think at versailles uh and eventually they they end up creating these very centralized political institutions then we move into the republic and those institutions like the people running those institutions basically want to entrench themselves and and further centralize and make legible and standardize french society so I don't know if I have like uh, I don't know if there's if only one of these needs to happen. I think the more important thing is that there are certain states and, and maybe other organizations that are able to compound the gains of standardization and centralization extremely quickly and completely dominate their near rivals. And that's that's where you get that historical phenomenon of like of the nation state or or even of like the later Roman church is an example of this. Like you get this across domains, right? Amazon is maybe a recent one in in logistics. But there's kind of like a domain when you have a domain of competitors and one is able to capture the gains of standardization quickly, they're generally going to outcompete those rivals very quickly. Yeah, well, in some sense, it's about like what's the psychological construction of your domain? One of the things that I think the centralized states are doing is they are psychologically constructing themselves and reconstructing themselves to consider a larger domain to be normal. And they they are looking beyond themselves more and thus seeing more need for coordination internally and seeing more differentiation between themselves uh, as a sort of unified thing and the surroundings as distinct things. And so this this feeds into this kind of like uh, 
homogenizing ideas like standardization and centralization and nationality, uh, nationalism and stuff like this. And it, it's, and, you know, one of the reasons they are centralizing is just that they've undergone that shift of consciousness to seeing the outside world as something within their domain of competition and thus putting aside the more internal stuff. And then the other thing is, yeah, like as you centralize, you actually gain enormous amounts of power. Like so the reason centralization gets done and the reason it happens is because it is in fact more powerful. That the more, like the larger of a scale you can centralize at, the more power you have. And the it's just that I, I'm like with this sort of Babel model, I'm talking about kind of the limits of this process, which is when you reach the totality of the domain, actually the the psychological deferment of competition, the deferment of intellect of internal competition for the sake of external competition ceases to be one of the forces that can tie you together. And so your thing falls apart. That's interesting. Um, they, I, I just want to. I just want to. I just want to like reflect on this this prediction. So the prediction then is, you know, suppose we never leave Earth. It's not likely. I mean, Elon is building his spaceships, but um, so just for for simplicity's sake, let's suppose we stay on Earth. We can then expect sort of a multipolar world order for the uh, for the foreseeable future for for in the indefinite term. There's always like there might be someone, you know, achieves UN style world domination in 1945 and then immediately breaks apart because actually turns out suddenly there's there's these internal conflicts that are no longer being deferred. But as you break things apart more, the the push towards centralization becomes more and more significant because centralization continues to be dominant and as a strategy on an, on a more open domain. So, okay, you get a multipolar, but not too many poles world order. And then within these poles, you get something like, you get some equilibrium amount of centralization of the culture. And, you know, and it's more centralization than existed previously when there were fewer barriers to communication. I wonder what the countervailing pressure is that keeps it as being 10,000 people rather than, um, you know, one person. It might just be that that the, the sort of Girardian competition dynamics and the, the yeah, the, the imitation dynamics and the domination dynamics actually just break down a lot earlier than you get to everyone is imitating a single person um, without differentiation. But the, the result of this is, is maybe we imagine kind of there's only room for, for sort of 10,000 eigen souls. And this is kind of a bleak future because it, it kind of imagines that then there's this stagnation, this end of history where, you know, the vast majority of people are living these imitative clone lives and lose a lot of their individuality and we have sort of a fixed cap on the amount of diversity in our future. Um, this assuming, you know, no expansion, no like new introduction of, of technologies that somehow shift the horizons back down to being very small. Anyways, this is, this is a, 
some semi-bleak scenario that I lay out. Um, I'd be curious for your thoughts, and then I have somewhere else, something else to add to it. So th- th- this would be a kind of latent argument for why mass societies tend toward totalitarianism in a way. And by, you know, by totalitarianism, I mean that you, you end up having to become very interventionist uh, and even propagandistic in order to kind of keep things coordinated. You know, you imagine a society of 500 million people, right? Um, so not that far from where the U.S. is, uh, and I think a little below uh, where the European Union is. And so if we're yeah, in China, billion people, India, billion people. Uh, and if you, you know, you go by that 10,000 eigensouls thing, how many things are there for people to do in a society? When you have a modern technologically advanced society, it turns out you need less and less people to do a lot of things, right? There are, there are more tasks that you need to do, but the tasks become more specialized and simpler, right? You, you can have more people who want to compete over that thing assuming that there's like a scarcity of things to do for a much bigger number of people. I'm not sure I believe that. I So I think... Like this is in terms of literally, you know, the, the economic version is people applying for uh, jobs, right? Yeah. So I think, I think what's happening is with technology, it expands the domain of competition very quickly. So it's not like technological society means that there's fewer roles or that the society becomes simpler or less complex and thus more competitive over fewer roles. It's more like it it crushes diversity, first of all, so that the only one stack of roles is present. There's there's only the dominant sort of monopolistic stack and or and or it's like multipolar competitors if it's a total domain. Um, and that, so that means that like that limit may be much lower than had previously existed. Right. So that means, you know, now new England and upper Canada and lower Canada and, and California and the Midwest and the West are all, you know, speaking of North America, now they're all suddenly thrust into the same environment where previously they had all these distinctions. Mm-hmm. They have to specialize in different ways previously, whereas now they're kind of having to converge in very similar domains. Yeah, so they're converging into a similar domain. So that's the one way it can cause what you're saying, but I think it's a different mechanism. But then you do get quite a bit of differentiation within a, a technical society. And a technical society is actually very complex, Like, and the expertise goes quite deep. It's not this, this sort of unskilled, simple labor um, the specializations, you know, if you are a master mechanic of of jet engines or something or a master master yeah. farmer. I mean, this this depends now on what part, like what part of the industrialization process you're at somewhat. Right. Yeah. So let me let me let me uh, bring this to a close on, at like, you know, what stage of industrialization are we at? Um, so I think I think in an actually I don't know if I'll call it healthy, but uh, the the sort of main growth phase of uh, the main sequence of an industrial society, you have quite a bit of diversity of roles and people are fairly healthily specialized into those roles. And there's there is a lot of labor market homogenization to make the whole thing work. But I think that's like there's there's 
that's because a single order has captured more space rather than a simpler order has come in. And the so it's like a more complex order, but it just scales faster than it grows in complexity or something like that. Um, but then the other thing is we are actually in a post-industrial scenario. So our intuitions about what a technological society looks like from America are actually a post-technological society where it's not really about, you know, we all have our roles to play in the grand organism of society. It's more like we are finding ways to compete over and distribute a, a narrower and narrower set of spoils, right? Like who gets the so-called good schools? Who gets the money? Who gets the nice the nice cities and who does not get the nice cities? Um like who who gets to be at the top of the Instagram uh, hierarchy and who does not like it's it's things have become more about competition over spoils uh, where where like this has been divorced from a functional niche and everyone is kind of occupying the same functional niche or increasingly so there are, there are fewer functional niches because there's less functionality. And so maybe we are in the post-industrial society, we've gotten simultaneously huge centralization uh, through the industrial era. And then the complexity of the industrial stack has collapsed because we outsourced the actual hard part. And and what you're left with is this post-industrial society where the only thing left to do is compete over centralized esteem and that is what leads to kind of the Girardian crisis. I mean, to, to keep bringing that up. So the the other thing that happens though is that be, because of that process, and also because of the fungibility of various jobs and social roles, when you're living in in a mass society, you kind of have more visibility. I think of what's what's going on across the the rest of of the space so like if if you're you know if you're living in america in like 1760 you you have a very localized domain the the people you're interacting with and that you're in competition with are extremely localized right maybe it's like one city at most even for very elite people and you know if you're in kind of like a farming community or something it's it's even less than that versus if you're in in 1960 you know you're now college educated, you've been socialized into industrial society, you kind of can travel to different cities, you have mass media as well. You also have mass organizations, right? You have like political parties telling you that like your collection of millions of people is in conflict with this other organization of millions of people. The social competition ends up scaling up extremely high and the the size of populations that you perceive yourself as competing against is also much higher. Um, I mean, even in a single university, right? Like the number of people that are in those institutions now is like many, many times the numbers that they were previously. And so I do think that there's this way that in in a large mass society that is also fairly centralized, you are going to have um, a very heightened sense of competition. And so you're then going to have to have a much stronger kind of social management response to this where you either direct the, those competitive energies in 
in particular ways, or, or else you try and socialize them out of the population somehow. The one obviously might occur in a more militaristic society, the other in, in like kind of HR society that we sort of live in. But, you know, regardless of the route that it takes, the point is that the level of intervention and the scale, like the number of people over which power has to operate to do that, is now extremely high, like much higher than you would have had, not just because of technological barriers, but also because like the the size of the populations we're dealing with that are all kind of involved as a group, right? So like there's that, that basic principle that when you're dealing with uh, a population acting as kind of a crowd in a single phenomenon, you kind of have to treat it as a single entity to a degree. The size of those crowd entities is now much higher. And so the relationship between power and between major institutions and those populations is going to change substantially. And the way it's going to change is that it is impossible for them to, to relate to the populations they're managing as individuals or even as kind of small, very localized communities. And I mean, you, you have things that kind of seem like exceptions to this, you know, like niche marketing or something like that. Um, or, you know, it's like, oh, I'm talking about pineapples and suddenly my phone's giving me ads for pineapples. Like there, there are these ways you can start to kind of be, become specialized enough with the way that you work with data that you can kind of almost circle back to a very individualized experience. But I don't think anyone experiences those in the same way that they would like a local shopkeeper down the road, right? Who knows your name and is a person. It's not quite that everyone has the same relationship to the pineapples, but everyone has the same vocabulary of relationship to the pineapples. Yeah, that's true. The The kinds of relationships homogenize as well, right? Like in we we have professional relationships and maybe familial and friendship relationships. Uh, and when we're younger, maybe we have like student relationships. Yeah, th this is why like the linear algebra analogy is interesting. You know, call them eigensouls. It's not that there's like 10,000 separate type of types of people and like each one, each person is like exactly one of them. People are, are more like these linear combinations of of these uh, these 10,000 kind of unique basis. I mean, maybe it's less than 10,000. Who knows? Right. But like the, if you're linear combinations, it's like, yeah, you've like you have a unique combination of traits but there are traits, all of which you share with other people in varying degrees and and which aren't doing anything sort of complex and nonlinear in you. It's more like you've just got, you know, 63 percentile pineapples and like, you know, 12 percentile Netflix. Right. And like you've you've been reduced to this this combination of archetypes. Yeah, but that's not necessarily um, like I, I can see positive readings of that as well, right? Like if if you have the traits of a certain archetype, then especially if it's one that you're particularly agreeable to, like, you know, say that you have have strong leadership traits and, and you're fascinated by kingly archetypes or um, you know, whatever it is, like there's an argument where, OK, well, if we can kind of figure out how to cultivate people towards these archetypes, it's actually a good thing because then we can, you know, people can realize their potential properly. No, but they, 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 this is the thing. No, it's like even if you have really good archetypes, 
you know, the, what you're talking about there is just the varying quality of those archetypes. Yeah, obviously, if we have higher quality archetypes, then that's better than if we have lower quality archetypes, even if there's, you know, 100 million people with with 10,000 eigensouls or whatever. Um, but I think there's a sense in which people are not reaching their potential because the the human being is capable of actually being this highly independent interesting unique being and and that's in some sense our teleology and and it's it's like it almost reminds you of the absurdity of the the premise of the matrix you know where it's like yeah we're going to take these human beings these complex amazing creatures and we're going to reduce them down to being batteries right like it it's it's it feels like that uh, where like yeah okay you've homogenized the population which enables scaling of these these large industrial power conglomerates but but the result is that you've done something absurd to the human condition and so this is where maybe i want to introduce something that's a little bit less bleak thanks for listening we've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast the second half is available on our patreon you can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.